please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of God. In the year 369 AD, there was a great famine in the region of Caesarea, in what is now modern-day Turkey. At the time, there happened to live there one of the great fathers of the Eastern Church, a man by the name of Basil of Caesarea, now known as Basil the Great. Basil was a man of great theological renown, but he was also a man of great piety and care for the poor and devotion to God. And so at the time of the famine... Basil saw the need of the people and the plight of those suffering and was moved to action. He saw that he could not stand around and do nothing, but that his call as a follower of Jesus was to do something for those who were in need. And so out of that, Basil founded what would become known as the Basileid, which would first started as him serving in what is like a modern soup kitchen today, but grew into an entire complex where he helped their city meet the needs of the poor, of the sick, and of the hurting. At that time uh, lived one of the other great Eastern fathers, who happened to be Basil's best friend, Gregory of Nazianzus, who described this Basileid in this way. He said, go forth a little way from the city of Caesarea, and behold the new city, the storehouse of piety, where disease is regarded in a religious light, and disaster is thought a blessing, and sympathy is put to the test. Basil's biographer rightfully states that the Basileid is, to be understood, not primarily as a new kind of charitable institution, but rather a new set of relationships, a new social order that both anticipates and participates in the creation of a new heaven and new earth where justice dwells. And people living together create a new kind of community. This is fitting, as you may think this sounds familiar, because Basil's inspiration was none other than the example of the early church in our text today. And for this reason, I agree once again with Basil's biographer who said, the new city is present wherever people live together in this way, waiting for the kingdom of God, even as they constitute a sign of its presence in our midst. Some of you will know when I say this, and I'm going to need some help from my college and and C group people here. But when I ask for vision, what three words am I looking for? Very good. Everybody say up. Everybody say in. Everybody say out. This is what we talk about often when we say vision. And in our text today, we clearly see 
the early church modeled this vision of church for us. And so our sermon title today is Up, In, and Out, The Vision of a New City. So before we go deeper into this text, I want to ask you just to pray with me one more time. Would you bow your heads with me? God, thank you so much for your word, for its goodness, for the way it teaches us. I pray you would help us to treasure your word in our hearts that we wouldn't sin against you. God, let your words be proclaimed today, and would you teach us what it looks like to live together as the church? Oh, God, thank you for the gift of the church. Let us be encouraged and challenged by your word to learn from the brothers and sisters of God before us. And may we leave a legacy for those who will come after us, God, to continue following Christ. Thank you, God. We love you and we praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we talk about up, in, and out, for those of you that may have not been around as much, what we're referring to is what we see in this passage, which is three simple words to help us understand the predominant way we think about the relationship within the church or the three main things we had to do in the church up our vertical relationship between man and God in our horizontal relationship with one another and out the outward manifestation of, of the mission of the people of God, what it looks like to live together as this people. What we see in this passage and throughout all of scripture is that these three complement each other. And, and so as we talk about them, I'll, I'll delineate to help us. But really what you'll see is they're always working together. To go further up in relationship with God drives us deeper into the fellowship we have with one another. And to go deeper in the fellowship of Christ with one another will always lead us to share that message with more people. That more can come to know and become part of the fellowship. And so up, in, and out is the vision of the church. It's the way we live, and they all three work together teaching us what it looks like to be the church. In our passage today, I think there are five marks of ministry that help us more fully understand up, in, and out. These five marks could be described in different ways, but for today, I'm going to describe them as teaching, fellowship, worship, service, and evangelistic outreach. Teaching, fellowship, worship, service, and evangelistic outreach. As we look to up, the vertical relationship between God and and his people, we see the first place our passage tells us, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching, we can understand here, is to, to be wrapped up in both what we would talk about today as teaching, as preaching, and even most likely as in discipleship, the, the learning that takes place between believers who are teaching each other what it looks like to follow Jesus. As the rest of Acts shows us, the predominant, the primary way that they were teaching was that they were using the scriptures they had, the Old Testament, to show the people about Jesus and how he is the long-awaited Messiah that they, had, that they had been prophesying and waiting for. It's all about Jesus, even in the Old Testament, in case you didn't know that, right? And so the gospel message that we know today is the message that they were proclaiming, the teaching that they were devoting themselves to, this good news that we just see Peter preach in the Sermon of Pentecost right before this, right? That there is brokenness in the world and that each and every one of us has participated in the brokenness of the world through what the Bible calls sin. And that what we've earned for our sin is death, separation eternally from God. That's what we rightfully earn. But the good news, the gospel, is that God didn't leave it there. 
right? The, Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the good news is this, that God looked on us and saw there was no way and made a way for us. That very way is Jesus, God himself taking on flesh. As we heard last week from John Mark, this beautiful picture in Philippians 2 of God incarnate, Jesus coming and humbling himself to be born as a human and to live as a servant and to die a death on the cross, a criminal's death, the death we deserve. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave, defeating the power of sin and death, so that those who would believe in him, who trust in him, who put their faith in him, will be saved from their sins and have life eternal with God. This is the good news of the gospel, and this is the teaching that the apostles were giving to the people and that they were devoting themselves to. And it's what we still devote ourselves to today, church. This is the good news of God's love for us and for the entire world. And as we know is what we see from earlier in Acts and throughout the rest of the Gospels, part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is upon receiving, upon confessing Jesus as Lord and believing in him, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to guide us. And Jesus tells them in Acts 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And we see this demonstrated in the community early on here. And so it is right away we recognize that the they, spoken of in the second word of verse 42, are all these people who are the apostles, the disciples, and then the 3,000 that had just been added to the number by believing in Jesus, right? And so they are a community filled with the Holy Spirit built on and around Jesus, right? We've heard this the last few weeks, thinking of the different ways in Ephesians 4 when we talk about Jesus as the head. And the body, we are the body that follows after him. He is the one that leads us, right? When you think of Paul's description of Jesus as the foundation, and we are the temple, the building that is built on top of that. Now, the dwelling place for God through the Holy Spirit. And so we see today still as a community, we join together as a community filled with the Holy Spirit and built on and around Jesus. Say it's all about Jesus. The second thing we see as they devote themselves to this vertical relationship with God, not only are they devoted to the apostles' teaching, but they are devoted to worship. Worship. And we see, see this primarily in the passage through these words, the breaking of bread, through the prayers, and through what we see later on, verse, verse 47, praising God. I love the flow of what we see here as it teaches us. The natural overflow as they devote themselves to biblical teaching is that it moves them to worship. Do you catch this? Because this is something the Lord's been trying to teach me, if I can be honest with you, church. Let me share my struggle with you. I've been in seminary for, I think, eternity. And um, as, as we are drawing nigh to, to the end of our time, uh, I am struggling, and I've been struggling with this continued effort to, to really think about what this means, what we see here in this passage. That am I devoted to learning, to growing to the teaching of Jesus, and not just intellectually, but in my heart? God calls us to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, with our entire person. And so being part of the church is not just intellectually gathering facts or knowing what to go out to do, but it is internalizing it in the core of who we are, believing it with all of our being. As they devoted themselves to biblical teaching, it moved them to worship. 
I got to confess, sometimes I don't, there's something that's missing in there. And so I'm asking God to forgive me and help me learn as I pray. If you feel this way ever, when we come and we learn about God, so we devote ourselves to the word, to discipleship, to preaching, hearing the preaching of the word, let it move us to worship of God. I love that we see they remember Jesus and worshiped him through communion. Did you know, did you guys know we take communion every week? And when we do, we are participating in something special. It's not just because we like the taste of stale bread and grape juice in little tiny cups, right? There is something beautiful that's taking place here that is being referenced in this passage. At the time, the the communion celebration was celebrated as a feast. Uh, This practice went on for probably about the first hundred years of the church, and then it began to morph more into something similar to what we have today. It took various forms. But for the time being, what we see here when it says the breaking of bread, it, it is almost certainly referencing communion, but also means this entire communal meal that they took together to remember, just like the Last Supper Jesus had with his apostles. And so... What we get to do when we come and take communion together, one is remembering what Jesus has done for us and worshiping him, worshiping God for his goodness to us in and through this remembrance. Uh, Tony Merida, pastor and author, said that as they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, they heard Jesus. And as they devoted themselves to worship through communion, they saw Jesus. They beheld him with their eyes and remembered him in this way. I pray for us that when we come and take communion together, we'll see that we are getting to participate in this worship. And they're so joining with the saints across the ages. And one of the beginning, the foundational ways the church was called to remember and worship Jesus. So they devoted themselves to communion and remembering Jesus in this way. And I love that we also see they had a simple and expectant faith, and so they prayed to God together. They devoted themselves to the prayers. Now, what is probably being referenced here is a more formal version of prayer, which would be, again, something similar to what we just did, right? There was a public formal time where we engaged in a prayer together, and then we allowed you to participate in prayer with either person near you or on your own. And what they were devoting themselves to, as we can see from the, the rest of the passage, and because we know the rest of the book of Acts, was not just this formal prayer, but times of informal prayer, times of pray, praying together, times of praying on their own. They prayed in the good times and praised God for the work he was doing. They prayed in the bad times when they were in jail, crying out and singing praises to God and asking for deliverance. And for people to come to know God, they prayed at all times because they had a simple, expectant faith. They believed God could do the things he said he would do. And so they called out to him to work as he had told them to. As they reflected on God through the teaching, we also see they had a reverence and an awe toward God. Look at verse 43. It says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. This word awe often is translated as fear as well, a reverential fear for God. I must confess, as I was studying and and looking through this passage, preparing for today, this was another verse that the Lord used to really speak to my soul. 
they had a reverence and an awe when they came before God that led them to continually praising God with glad hearts. Verses 46 and 47. There was a holy wonder for the incredible work that God was doing and that they were getting to take a part in. And from what we see, it seems this was their not just a one-time emotional experience, but their continual attitude towards God every time they gathered. And what the text indicates for us is that was daily. So every time they gathered before God, every time they devoted themselves to the teaching, every time they devoted themselves to remembering Jesus through communion, every time they devoted themselves to prayer, they came with a reverential awe saying, God, you are good and holy and wondrous. Recognizing who God is and their place before him and the incredible thing it is that they could even come to him. And I've got to be honest, I miss that sometimes. Church, have you ever come in here and worshipped and sat through the songs, maybe even the sermon, maybe even communion, maybe even saying hi to people and leaving without ever thinking reverentially about God? Recognizing who he is and who you are and the amazing wonder it is that we can even come and do what we just did? I have. But what I see in this text is that to be the church calls us to remember our place before God and to stand in awe of him and in wonder of him. We are not to grow tired of doing good. We are not to grow weary of the regular things of God because we do them regularly week to week doesn't make them any less amazing or miraculous that God has sent his son to die for us on the cross and raised from the grave. We should be a people most joyful, most in awe, most struck by wonder at God's goodness toward us. And it should lead us to continually praise God with gladness of heart. As they devoted themselves to their upward relationship with God, we also see that they had inward relationship with God. So everybody say in. The inward relationship in the community is most understood in this word we see here, fellowship. Fellowship, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. The Greek word here is a word some of you are probably familiar with, koinonia, and is a popular, a very uh, powerful word in, in the text here. Um, best probably understood as a common participation with others. A sharing participation with others. So this fellowship, this koinonia they have, what we can see here in the text is a common participation in these things that are taking place and with one another. But the rest of the text really goes deeper in helping us understand this. Once again, we see that flowing from up in their relationship with God, fellowship with others is also based on our fellowship with God first, right? We've seen this as we talked about the other passages and the other weeks. First, we must have fellowship with God before we can have Christ-like fellowship with one another. First John 1 John 1.3 talks about this. And so much so that we see John base our fellowship with one another on our fellowship with God. He says we'll know that we have fellowship with one another if we have this particip- participation with God and the work of Christ through the Holy Spirit. And so... We see this is a group of people that are committed to following Jesus, right? A real simple understanding of what's taking place here. But together they've gathered around Jesus and say, we have participation with one another in the things of Christ. 
So fellowship, then, is at the core of what it means to be the church. When we come together, when we gather together as the people of God, the family of God, the body of Christ, all these different metaphors we've used to to think about what it means to be God's people, to be the church, to fellowship both draws us into remembering what it means to have relationship with God in and through Jesus and that how that provides relationship with one another. We think of Paul in Ephesians 2, how the intimacy has been taken away. There's no more division anymore, right? In Christ, we are one. We are unified. And so together we come and have fellowship with one another based on this fellowship we have with God. And look, I'm not against the English language. In fact, it's the only one I have. Um, And so I get that this can sound very like whiny or complaining what I'm about to say. And so I hope it doesn't. But the English language sometimes just doesn't thoroughly reflect what the original language of the Bible is trying to teach us. And more than that, we tend to use, take words that had a meaning and then use them to mean something totally different. Um, and that catches on. And I think fellowship is one of those words. Because if you're at all like me, maybe you've grown up uh, around Baptists or just uh, evangelicals in the South, or uh, maybe you haven't. But if you hear this word fellowship, all I think about is, like, we're going to have some food, right? <laughs> like, look, and again, I ain't against having food. I love having food. My wife runs for a Sunday lunch. It's, it's like in part of what we do, who we are here. We, we, are, we love having food. And we even see that in this passage, right? So, again, having food, uh, taking, breaking bread together, table fellowship is an important part, an important part of fellowship. But it's not the whole of fellowship. If we diminish fellowship just to the thought of when we gather together once a month for a meal, then we've missed something greatly about what it means to have fellowship with one another, as the early church did. We need to recover the full weight of this word. They devoted themselves to a common way of life, not just a meal every month. I love our meal every month. I love that we meet together every Sunday. And I think we do other things like our community groups and like the growth groups out in the community, the things we do together. We have different parties and things, and we try to foster this fellowship. But there's still a danger sometimes to think that's it. But fellowship goes so much deeper than that. And, of course, it should when we think about its foundation. If it's founded upon the very weight of the gospel, then, of course, it should be more than just those things. It incorporates those things, but it's so much more. It's a common way of life around Jesus. The New Testament highlights the importance of fellowship through various passages. We've heard some of them quoted. I want to quote a list of these for you again, what's known as the one another passages, just to get a a glimpse um, of, of what this looks like to live in in together, to be a community of people filled with the Holy Spirit, centered on and built upon Christ, to have fellowship with one another. So I'm going to read through these pretty quickly, and I I just ask you to prayerfully listen and catch. Hopefully you can see the weight and the breadth of which the New Testament talks about what it means to have fellowship with one another. John 13, 34, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Romans 12, 5, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. 
Romans 12, 10, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Romans 12, 10 again, outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 15, 14, instruct one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 25, the members would have the same concern for each other. Galatians 5, 13, serve one another through love. Galatians 6, 2, carry one another's burdens. Ephesians 4, 2, with patience, bearing one another, bearing with one another in love. Ephesians 4, 32, be kind and compassionate to one another. Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Philippians 2.3, in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Colossians 3.9, do not lie to one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, always pursue what is good for one another. Hebrews 10.24, let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works. James 4.11, don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. James 5.9, do not complain about one another. James 5.16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. 1 Peter 4.9, be hospitable to one another without complaining. 1 Peter 5.5, as all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. 1 John 4.7, dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. 1 John 4.12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us. The Bible is clear that fellowship is an important aspect of who we are as God's people. It's not optional. John Mark uh, talked about this a handful of weeks ago in the first sermon, how unity through Christ is the reality, whether we live that out or not. And I think the same is true for fellowship. Fellowship is key to our unity in Christ. And in reality, we have fellowship with one another if you are in Christ. Our fellowship is founded on this unity, and our shared participation in Christ is real. But then we have to ask ourselves the question, do we live like it? Do we live like this truth is our reality? What keeps you from fellowship, genuine, true fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ? Is it fear? Fear of what man thinks over what God thinks? Is it time, busyness of life, stage of life? It's honestly a lack of interest. Just don't know them, don't want to know them right now. I don't know. We could think about many different things. And there's no shortage of distractions we have in our world today. But what I think we see from Scripture, and if we think about just the short sample of what we've heard, none of those excuses stand. There are realities we have to work through. I'm not saying it's easy. But none of those excuses stand in light of what we've been called to and what Scripture tells us is our true reality, that we are one in Christ. We have fellowship with one another. And we are just like the early church to be devoted to this fellowship. I think another way to think about it, maybe a healthier way, is to think we get to be in fellowship with one another. 
This is a joy. I hope you see that in our passage, that it is a glad thing for the early church to be in fellowship with one another. It's not a, a burden or something they have to fit into their schedule. It's not something they have to pray about to see if it's the right thing to do. No, they understand the proper outworking of relationship with God is relationship with one another around Christ. And so they were willing to devote themselves to the fellowship, to having this life in common with one another. Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, says, It is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brothers and sisters. Did you catch that? It is grace, nothing but grace, when we, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brothers and sisters. My brothers and sisters, it is a gift, an honor, to live in community with one another. I pray we have that attitude. Remember this gift and devote ourselves to the fellowship. We can follow the early church's example. This is going to sound, um, it's really complex. They spent time together physically, like actually, not like social media, like phone calls or texts. Like they were in each other's presence physically for a period of time. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, again, I, I feel like it's redundant, but having worked with college students for the last uh, ten, 10 years tells me there's a need to actually talk about this. And college students aren't the only ones that have a problem with it. Right. Hey, <laughs> nice, Josh. We need to follow the early church. That they, we got to spend time together. You can't know people that you don't spend time with. You can't have fellowship in the spirit if you don't haven't at least done the, the very preliminary work of actually gathering with these people, right? To be a gathering around Christ means you gotta first gather. Get together. Spend time with people in the church. They had all things in common. This is a real mark of fellowship in the spirit, right? All things in common. But what I love about this is it's easy to read this and kind of just Glance over like, yeah, yeah, they had all things in common. Yeah, they were like selling their possessions. It was really cool for the time. And um, it's a great picture. But there's something really beautiful that's taking place here that we can miss. Because this is not a superficial community, right? For them to say they had all things in common, this is a bold statement of Luke. Because, again, remember, who are the they? They had all things in common. Well, it's the group of the apostles, the disciples, and the 3,000 they just added, literally a diverse number from all around the world. Right? These people had come from Pentecost. And remember the beginning of the story in Acts, the, the gift of tongues to speak in different languages was given to them that they could share the gospel with all these different people that had traveled in from around the world. And now as many of these people heard the message and came to believe in faith, they've stayed. And so there's this diverse, growing community of people all around the world that have different languages, different cultures. In fact, it'd be easy for Luke to say the starting point would be that they had almost nothing in common. And yet, the reality in Christ is such that Luke can say they had all things in common. Church, this is true of us today. We have the same Jesus. We have the same Holy Spirit living within us. The diversity of the church is a beautiful thing when we live out the unity we have in Christ. What's our excuse, family? What's our excuse? Now, I, I say this 
And as I prayed over this, I wanted to say I'm encouraged and challenged because I look across this group of people and I know so many of you and the ones I'm getting to know, I've been encouraged already just by seeing you come and join in. And I know there's a heart for this here. I'm encouraged because I've seen this fellowship right here in Christ Community Church. I'm encouraged because I see the beautiful diversity of God at work here. How we've recognized that unity does not equal uniformity. That we can bring our diversity and the different gifts and the different backgrounds we have together and in Christ use them as one. And I'm encouraged. But I'm also challenged because I see there's so much growth to go in this area. Church, we can, we can grow in this area. We can t- continue to press on and devote ourselves to the fellowship. And to heed the example of the early church, so much so that we could pray that just like them, we may have a diverse fellowship of people from all different backgrounds, all parts of the world, all different cultures, and yet be able to say, because of Jesus, we have all things in common. May that be true of us. Well, as we see, they devoted themselves to the teaching and to worship and their vertical relationship with God, and then into the fellowship and their horizontal relationship with one another, what we see is that the natural overflow of devoted fellowship is then loving service. The natural overflow of devoted fellowship is loving service. Look at verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I won't say much here, but some have have made um, dismiss this passage or talked about it as an early form of communism or misunderstood it in many different ways. But what we can see is this is clearly not the case because, one, they weren't advocating for the dismissal of private property because, as we see here, they already had they still had private property. And throughout the testimony of Acts, just a couple of chapters later, people still had private property and remained um, in control, and even in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, it's not the fact they weren't uh, d- didn't receive the discipline of God because they didn't give, but because they lied about their giving, right? Peter says it was up to you. You could have given as much or as little as you wanted, but the fact is you, you lied about your giving. And so we see here what is happening is a voluntary giving, a voluntary service, again, is the overflow of their devotion to God and their devotion to one another. And it's a beautiful picture that they are so in tune with the spirit and so sensitive to the needs in their community that they're giving as anyone has needs. What I love is we don't see necessarily um, in the passage uh, that Peter first had to stand up and give a list of the needs in their community. They didn't have to post like a public bulletin to talk about what, what was going on. Um, they didn't have to like first gather committee and then vote on the committee and then like pray about the committee and then get the committee to meet a couple of times and think about, was this be a, a good allocation of our funds or they didn't need to do any of that because they were so in tune with the spirit and so in tune with one another as they devoted themselves to the fellowship and to the teaching that they saw the needs and they met them. Is that simple? Now, again, I'm not saying there aren't other factors as time and culture has changed. I understand we, we live in a very different world than they did in the first century Palestine, but there's a simplicity here that I think sometimes we overcomplicate. Wouldn't it be wonderful, brothers and sisters, 
if we were so in tune with God's spirit, we're so in touch with one another that we just knew when our brother and sister was in need and we were willing and lovingly able to just meet that need as we could. And if we don't have it, then we could pray and give what we have and encourage other brothers and sisters to meet the need because we come together again, united in Christ. There was a radical generosity that exemplified the early church, and that should still be a mark of the church today. A radical generosity that was rooted in God's love for us. We can look to the golden rule and think about Jesus' teaching, and, and simply it should be an overflow of what's taking place here, right? If we were to love others, as we wish to be loved, if we are to love others as Christ has loved us, well, then certainly it follows that as we look in our midst and see need, we do all that we can to meet that need. As we look in our midst and see hurting, we'll do what we can to bring healing. There's a beautiful description of service in the early church, just a few uh, 50 years or so, maybe a little bit longer after this church described in Acts, a man named Aristides um, addressed an apology to Emperor Hadrian around the year 125. I want to read for you what he wrote of the church. So again, just some handful of years after this description of Luke's church in Acts. And this is what he says to the emperor of Rome about the church at this time. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem. And they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God. And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to their ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they, and if they, no spare, if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. It's a challenging description for me as I read, but an encouraging one again. Do you see the marks of this church and the continuation of what it looks like to be the church from Luke and Acts to some years later to even now? We are still called to live in such a way, to take care of the widow, the orphan, the overlooked ones in our society is still a call of the church to care for one another and to give sacrificially and generously is still a call on the church today and it stems from remembering our fellowship and our participation in the spirit with one another and what christ has done for us christ didn't said himself he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul later quotes Christ saying it's more blessed to give than to receive. Do we truly believe these things? If so, then the result will be a life that looks like this. A community marked by Christ-like love and service to one another and to the community around us. 
Do we have our eyes open to see the opportunities to serve and be served within the community of God? One of the last ways things we see in out is evangelistic outreach. And this is more so implied in the passage, what we see here. Um, first and foremost, we can, we can understand there was evangelistic outreach happening because we are here today. We wouldn't be here today if the church in Jerusalem didn't share the message of the gospel with other people, right? It would have been a sect of people that followed this Jesus person for a while, and then they would have just had their own little community and died off when those people died, right? But the fact that they shared the gospel and lived the gospel out is testimony to the fact that we're here today. And the story of the rest of Acts bears witness to this as well. We know we could go through and look at all the just the next chapter. Peter and James and John are soon going to go and share and lead people to the faith. And Stephen is going to share. And then we're going to see the work of Philip. And then eventually we'll see Paul come to faith. And Paul's going to go and begin sharing with people. And Barnabas steps in. And we get these incredible stories of these men and these women who devote themselves to the teaching and to the fellowship. And then went out and shared this good news with others. That they continued to grow. People were being saved because the church was sharing the gospel together. What I want to look at and close today is something these passages tell us, byproducts of a church devoted to this vision of up, in, and out. Again, this is the story of the early church. Because this happened with the early church, does it mean that it's exactly how it's going to happen with every church? No, I don't think so. It's a passage describing to us the church. But again, we can see regularities and that there are certainly things that we're called to and we can learn from this example. And it seems to follow that much of these things will happen if the church lives in this way. What do I mean? Well, first, a byproduct in this passage seems to be favor with people. And or another way to understand that maybe today would be an impact in the community around them, an impact in the community around them. When it says favor, they had favor with people, with all the people. But one thing it doesn't mean is that everything was just going great. Right. Again, if you've read any more of the book of Acts, then, you know, this is not the case. Very soon, they're going to be tossed in jail, and they're going to be beaten, and then Stephen's going to be killed, and the church is going to be scattered, and there's going to be more persecutions and hardships. And yet, these things were already beginning to happen, and Luke can say they had favor with all the people. And so we know it's not an easy path, but again, I think more appropriately, we could understand this as impact in their community. They were living their lives in such a way, devoted to the teaching, devoted to the fellowship, that people couldn't help but see Jesus in them, right? It's the story of Peter in Acts 4.13, right? This, we, we've saw you, and we couldn't help but tell that you've been with Jesus. You're common, uneducated men, but it's clear you've been with Jesus. And the church was living in this way. One of my favorite examples of this was in the mid-300s, there was an emperor by the name of Julian the Apostate who used to be a believer or was claimed to be a Christian and then left the faith and wanted to revive paganism. He was not a Christian, and yet his testimony about Christianity's growth was that he believed it to be because of their charity to the poor. He said, the impious Galileans not only feed their own poor, but ours as well, welcoming them to their agape, to their love. They attract them as children are attracted with cakes. 
This is a man, the, the emperor of all of Rome, who wanted to put out Christianity and yet looked on it and said, they are growing and attracting people in such a way because of the way they love and take care of people. Not only do they take care of their own poor, they take care of our poor as well. We can't stop them. This is the same church today. We have the same Jesus, the same spirit, the same calling. One other thing we see in the passage is spiritual growth and numerical growth, which again makes sense. Does it mean that every time we share, every time we do all these things, it's a formula, this, then this? No. But as we give ourselves to God, as we devote ourselves to one another, and as we continue to share the message, people will come to faith. And if we are teaching and helping people to learn what it means to devote ourselves to the teachings of God, then they will grow in faith. And we will see maturity in the body, and we will see more people come and grow and be a part of the church. It's just the logical conclusion of what happens when we live these things out. And so it is today still, church. For those of you that like to put a neat bow on things, I want to just very briefly tell you what I see things that we should do here. Hopefully you've, you've noticed and picked up on this is still the call of us today. I think this picture of the church teaches us how to live as the church today. The five things it tells us that we should do. One, learn purposefully. As a church, we should be people who learn purposefully. We want to learn and grow in devotion to God through studying the Bible and let it lead us to worship. And so we learn with a purpose. Two, we worship joyously. We worship knowing the great news that we have and the good love that's been given to us in and through God and the gospel. And so we worship with a joy that is contagious and shows people Christ. Three, we give generously. We give generously. Jesus gave all he had for us. How can we be expected to do anything less? Give generously. Four, we serve willingly. We serve willingly. Not begrudged, but gladly, out of gladness of heart. Wanting to serve one another as Christ has served us. Learning from his example, we serve willingly. And lastly, we share expectantly. We share expectantly with the hope of Jesus. Share the good news of God wherever you go, with your life and with your words, and have an expectation that God's good word, that the gospel will do its work and lead people to salvation. This is not easy, and it will cost us. And I pray that we will see, as Jesus said, we will count the costs and know that Jesus is worth it. The church is worth it. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example that you've given us in your word. Thank you for its truth. I pray, God, you would teach us what it looks like to follow you, to be your brother, to be your church, to be your body, to be the family of God. God, God, to be such a sweet bomb that the community around us would be drawn in. They couldn't help but see you, God. May the gospel be clearly lived and clearly spoken through what we do here. Thank you for that good news. I pray we would devote ourselves to you, to your teaching, God, to your worship, to the fellowship, to service, and to sharing this message with any and all that you would give to us. God, we thank you. We love you. We praise you in this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray.